Our reading for today is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Listen now to the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service once again. Uh, thanks to uh, Pastor Samuel for giving us the uh, word today. Um, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for gathering us and for a chance to hear your word, to praise your name, and to gather together um, in this way. Help us now to continue to listen to your word, for your word, and in the hearing, help us to listen and to obey and be your friends. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I originally um, planned to start a new sermon series today, but our daily New Testament reading this week included the eighth chapter of Romans, and I found these words really just really encouraging, and I thought it would be good for us all to hear them one more time. In the first seven chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul lays out this bleak history of the brokenness of creation and of humanity. And God's redemptive plan of salvation in Jesus Christ in light of that brokenness. He then concludes at the beginning of chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I doubt any of us need any further convincing of the brokenness of our world, but I know that I could use another reminder that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think it's a word that we all need to hear again and again. The chapter begins with the assertion, there is no condemnation, and ends, as you just heard, with a series of rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Absolutely no one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Of course he will. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The God who justifies? Of course not. Who is to condemn? 
Christ who is interceding for us? Of course not. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. Is there anyone or anything that can possibly separate us from the love of Christ? No. There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says that I am sure, I am confident, I am persuaded, I am convinced that nothing, that nothing, and he's not talking just about the dangers of the physical world, but nothing he says in all of creation, not life, not death, not powers, not anything will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. No condemnation and no separation. Paul knows better than anyone from his own experiences about the potential separators from the love of God. For example, he writes in 2 Corinthians 11 where he mocks these false teachers who are undermining his witness. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew all about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sore. Yet in the midst of all of this, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That three-word phrase is a single compound word in Greek that appears only here in the whole Bible. It's huper nikao in Greek, and it's formed by a combination of huper or hyper, which means above, over, beyond, exceeding, as in hyperactive or hyperbole, hypertext. And Nikao, who was the goddess of victory, or simply victory, and is now the name of a well-known sports apparel company. More than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than. Not just victorious, but super victorious. Super Nike. An absolute and total victory. Imagine winning a basketball game 100 to zero. Paul says, no matter what situation you face, no matter how difficult it is, the past, the present, and even the future, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves us. That is through Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his love for us by redeeming our lives on the cross. More than conquerors. I wonder if this is how you feel all the time. Is this what you think of yourself? 
Do you know that this is your identity? Do you know that despite your failures, your struggles, your doubts, you are a super victor in Jesus Christ? Super victor sounds like something Diane, Jordan, and Josephine's mom might call her husband. But you are all super victors in Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have been justified, redeemed, atoned for. Your sins have been passed over and no longer counted against you. As those who abide in Christ, you can have confidence in your daily living and in your daily ministry. There is no reason to walk around defeated, discouraged, and depressed. Don't let anyone rob you of this assurance. There's an old Peanuts comic strip that is the opposite of what Paul is getting at here. For those of you who are not familiar with Peanuts, the character Charlie Brown frequently suffers from very low self-esteem, and he regularly visits his friend Lucy and her makeshift psychiatric help desk. He pays a five-cent copay, sits down, and patiently listens to her as she gives some usually questionable advice. For example, in this strip, Lucy tells Charlie Brown, sometimes I feel we are not communicating. You, Charlie Brown, are a foul ball in the line drive of life. You're often in the shadow of your own goalpost. You are a miscue. You are three putts on the 18th green. You are a 7-10 split in the 10th frame, a love set. You have dropped a rod and reel in the lake of life. You're a missed free throw, a shanked nine iron, and a called third strike. Do you understand? Have I made myself clear? First of all, if you have a friend like that, it's time to get some new friends. Or if your doctor talks to you like that, it's time to switch practices. Charlie Brown, however, ever the optimist, accepts everything Lucy says about his life as if it were true. And he responds with, just wait till next year. He believes falsely that somehow his life will turn around next year. It won't. It won't change because it's not just a matter of self-confidence. It's not going to magically change. And he never realizes the truth about himself. Instead, he lets the false and poor opinions of others shape his view of himself. It's a common trap that you can also fall into, wrongly believing that you are the sum of what others say about you, even if you have some good friends. I've noticed that there's been a resurgence in the popularity of the old TV show Friends that ran back in um, 94 to 2004. Those, that was the, the first decade of my married life, and so I wasn't really into this show. But for those of a certain age, those just out of college or grad school and just starting to work, the show was a cultural touchstone. It's about a group of single friends living in New York City as they navigate through choppy romances and as they embark on the beginnings of their careers. And the ethos of the show is captured in the, this really catchy theme song that you may remember, even if you didn't really watch the show. I'm not gonna sing it, but here are the lyrics. 
So no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke. You're broke. Your love life's the OA. It's like you're always stuck in second gear. When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. But, but, I'll be there for you when the rain starts to pour. I'll be there for you like I've been there before. I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. Life is tough. You may feel like Charlie Brown. Your life is not turning out the way you had hoped for. But you have people around you who will be there for you. You have friends. Maybe you have good friends. And their presence, presumably, will make it better. It's not wrong. Having friends who are with you through the rains is great, especially having good friends like Pastor Samuel just spoke about. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And you do not need to resign yourself to a life of misery. You need not go through life as if you're stuck in second gear or like you're a shanked nine iron. The Apostle Paul tells us that there is a firmer foundation than that of attitude or the opinions of others, including those of even the best of friends. The Apostle Paul certainly found himself often heavily criticized, slandered, attacked, but he did not let the opinions or the accusations of others take root in his life because he rested his self-understanding and his hope on the God who loved him and died for him. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Life was incredibly difficult, but he did not lose hope. He did not lose faith. Because he abided in Christ, he was able to say, as he does in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Recently, my wife and I watched the movie Just Mercy. It's a powerfully understated true story about the beginnings of the work of the civil rights attorney, Brian Stevenson, and the Equal Justice Initiative. In the movie, Stevenson takes on the case of Walter McMillan, who is falsely accused of murder and sent to death row for a crime he never committed. As the story unfolds, we witness how every aspect of the criminal justice system is impossibly stacked against him. It's incredibly maddening, frustrating, and terrifying to know that this is how the system is set up. And it's hard to see how anyone could have hope in such a situation. And yet there is hope. I was especially struck by one scene when in the middle of all the frustrations, Brian Stevenson goes to church. He joins the people whose lives are so hard, whose spirits you would think would have been broken by the personal as well as the systemic and institutional racism all around them. Yet in the church, they are joyfully praising God. When they had every right and every expectation to be angry, bitter, and hateful. They instead worship God with joy. It's not a denial of the realities of their lives. It's not a hope for 
future escapism. It's what Paul writes about and what the followers of Jesus have always known and experienced. Joy is not immunity or removal from the harshness of daily life. It's finding joy in the midst of it. That's not mere optimism. It's not just about having the right or positive attitude. It's knowing the truth of what God has done in history in Jesus Christ that gives Paul and the people of God confidence in God. Paul knows that he is more than a conqueror, not because he feels good about himself, nor because he has a cheerful attitude, nor because of his good friends, nor because he has high esteem, and certainly not because his life has been made easy, but because of the historical fact, the knowledge of the love of God and what God has done in Jesus Christ because of that love. Paul says, God did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son. I think too often we pass over this fundamental truth far too quickly. God did not spare his own son. That statement should make us stop in our tracks every time. No parent in their right mind would sacrifice their child. It's unimaginable. On the contrary, every parent would instead willingly and happily sacrifice themselves to spare their child. But God did not spare his own. You know what this means? It means that there was absolutely no other way than the cross. If there were any other possibility, if there was any other way for God to redeem the world without sacrificing his son, God most definitely would have done it. Jesus himself desperately asked God, the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, that if it were at all possible that he might be spared the cross. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power, chose not to spare his son. There was no other way. That's why Jesus is the only way to the Father. If another path had been possible than through the cross, God certainly would have made it. This is why, as it says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I know that I will never fully understand why it had to be this way, but I can at least begin to appreciate the enormity of this sacrifice. God did not spare his son. This language echoes the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God commends Abraham for his obedience, even to the point of his willingness to sacrifice his only son. And God says, I know that you truly fear me because you did not spare even your own son. And the promise and prophecy that God made to Abraham so many years ago, God himself now fulfills in providing the sacrifice in his own son, Jesus Christ. Paul's basic argument in this passage is that since God did not 
since God did the most difficult thing possible, don't you think he will do all the lesser things? In Romans 5, he made, this, uh, he made a similar argument. He said that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If he did that for us while we were still sinners, how much more will God do now that we are reconciled to him and called the children of God? The scale is not nearly large enough, but if someone were to build you a magnificent mansion as a gift, don't you think that they could give you a few extra towels in the bathroom as well? If someone were to propose to you with a massive and expensive diamond ring, don't you think that they could also afford some gift wrapping? Do you know this? Do you know that God did not spare his only son and so will provide for all your needs so that you can be more than a conqueror? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work, everything you need to live the victorious Christian life, everything you need to carry on the ministry, everything you need in helping to build God's kingdom, everything you need to bring glory to God, God will supply and he will supply in abundance. What is it that you need right now? Do you need help in overcoming some temptation that you're fighting? Do you need some help in being comforted because you're feeling lonely? Do you need strength to go on and finish the work of ministry because you're tired and discouraged? Do you need wisdom because you're facing some difficult choices. God did not spare his own son. God can and God will supply all your needs in abundance so that you may abound in every good work. You are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Whom God has joined, let no one separate. We, the church, are the bride of Christ and joined to him forever. And nothing shall separate us, not your sins, not your doubts, not the devil. Shall the pandemic, racism, or unemployment separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? No. Shall cancer, terrorism, or war separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? No. Shall addiction, loneliness, or depression separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? No. Whatever you can think of right now that you think that might separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ, it won't. It won't. 
We may prove unfaithful, as we often do, but God is faithful. God cannot deny himself. Your life right now, as well as your eternal destiny, is in the hands of a loving God who sent his only son, who did not spare his own son. Your life does not rest with your ability to obey or how good you can be. God has the final word. And Paul here is merely echoing the words and the promise of Jesus in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one will snatch you away from the Father's hand. And whether you believe it or not, it does not change the fact of God's love and of his declaration and his promise that you are his and nothing shall separate And I want you to notice that Paul says that this is still ongoing. Sometimes people wrongly think that Jesus loved me once in the past, that one time when he died on the cross for me, and that's it. But Paul says that's only a part of the picture. In verse 34, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes. But more than that, he's the one who was raised and who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died for us, yes. But more than that, Jesus is still loving us. He lives, he has been raised and continues his love for us at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We are more than conquerors because he is more than the one who died. He's at the right hand of the Father in power and able to help us so that we are more than conquerors and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in him. Believe the good news and live as more than conquerors. Let's pray together. God, help us to claim for ourselves the truth that we are more than conquerors because you have loved us in Jesus Christ. Remind us again and again and again and again that nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from your love in Jesus Christ our Lord. And with that assurance, help us to go into the world and do the work before us with courage and imagination and out of the abundance and of joy. As Paul writes elsewhere, all of creation has been groaning and our neighborhoods are moaning. But we are more than conquerors. We have more than we need because Christ is with us even to the end of the age. Trusting you, help us to obey. And we pray now as Jesus taught us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.